I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to John 17. John chapter 17. And I want to look at the first three verses of that chapter. And this is how we're going to close out our year, Lord willing, in John 17. And then come the new year, we'll open the book of Ephesians and with much grace and help. We'll work our way through. But I expect to be in the 17th chapter of John for, for the rest of the year, for several weeks. And we could rightly spend the rest of our lives in John 17, probably, and not understand the half of it. Several commentaries I read this week, uh, some, of, some great men of the faith called this the greatest chapter in all the Bible. Some profound truth made known. By Christ as he's praying to his father. So this is what I'm going to call the Lord's Prayer. Now very often we refer to the model prayer in Luke 11 as the Lord's Prayer. But there we are given a model for how to pray. What types of things do we ask for? Will we ask for daily bread? What do we ask to be kept from? The Lord teaches us how to pray those things. But this, in truth, is the Lord's Prayer. He is raising his eyes to heaven, and he begins to address his Father. And the things that he says here, after he prays for himself and for his current disciples, and then for all of those who would believe in him, give us much of our theology of salvation, much of our theology about who Christ is, his relationship in the Trinity. So much comes right out of John chapter 17. And you'll notice as you flip backwards that John 17 is the end of a discourse, or we could call it a sermon, that began at least back in the 14th chapter. And so Jesus, chapters 14, 15, and 16, is talking to men about his Father, disclosing all of the blessings disclosing the Father's love and care to them. And then in chapter 17, as he brings this to a close, he begins to talk to his Father about men. Jesus praying for us. This is often referred to as his high priestly prayer. He is interceding on behalf of those that his Father has given to him. So I want to read the first five verses and then we'll spend our time in the first three. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for help. We ask for understanding. Lord, I ask that you would help me to divide these accurately, 
these words. May we benefit from it. May Christ be exalted and well pleased. We ask it in his name. Amen. So I want to speak this morning about the hour of Christ. The hour of Christ. First of all, Jesus said his hour has come. And then this is an hour that brings glory to both the Father and the Son. And it's also the hour which brings salvation to mankind. Needless to say, a lot is bound up in this hour. And at the outset, I want to to make clear, Jesus is not referring to, nor am I, an actual 60-minute period, one hour. He's referring to, I think, what begins here, or shortly after, his betrayal and arrest in Gethsemane, all the way through all of the events of the crucifixion, his giving up his spirit, his being buried, his being raised, his ascending back to heaven. So basically from this point until he finds himself seated again at the Father's right hand is the hour of which Jesus is speaking. It's interesting as you read through John's gospel, several times leading up to chapter 17, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But now... This hour had arrived. This hour in large scope refers to the time marked in the eternal counsel of God for the son to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. This was the hour for which Christ had come in the flesh. Do you remember what the angel made known to Joseph as he slept? Matthew chapter 1, you shall call him or name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus came into his own creation, submitting himself for the ultimate purpose of being a sacrifice for sin. It was the hour for which he had come in the flesh. John the Baptist said of him in the first chapter of this gospel, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about the greatness of Christ. He takes away the sin of the world in this hour. The absolute sufficiency of the shedding of Christ's blood and the giving of his spirit. This is also the hour for which the Father had given the Son in love. You remember that conversation with Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his Son for this hour. This hour of salvation. This hour of accomplishing redemption. This is also the hour that had been promised thousands of years before. It's not too far into God's revelation in Scripture that we get to the promising of the one who would come, born of woman, who would crush the serpent's head. In this hour that Jesus refers to here in John 17, he completely and utterly crushes the head of the serpent. This is the promised hour. 
It's the hour of his bruising. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father to bruise him. This is the hour in which that would take place. That's why so many strange things happened in this hour. Graves being opened, darkness at midday, and the like. It's clear from this context that Jesus was not just thinking of his death, that's where we're going to begin, but he's thinking of the entire consummation of his earthly ministry. Now think of this, of all the things that Christ did in a public ministry, John orders his gospel so that the last thing he does before he is betrayed is pray to his father, public ministry. Then he goes privately into the Garden of Gethsemane with some of his closest disciples, and he begins to pray again. Christ was the God-man, but he was also a man of prayer. And yet we think we need not be men and women of prayer. But in this prayer that he gives or he, he prays for us and for himself... He's not just thinking of his death, but everything about his earthly ministry is coming to a close. Everything that involves him finishing this work and then ultimately going back to the glory which he had with the Father before he was incarnate is included in this hour. Taken as a whole, and I say this reverently, this was his greatest hour. It's not when the angels sang at his birth. Oh, that was a great hour, all right, but not his greatest. What did the angels sing? Glory to God in the highest. Nor was his greatest hour when he confused and confounded the aged teachers of the law when he was 12 years old. That was a great hour, but not his greatest hour. When he was baptized... By John, the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. That was a great hour, but it wasn't his greatest. Think about all the miracles that Christ performed while he walked on earth in his public ministry. All of them notable, beginning with the turning of water into wine, progressing through Jesus walking on the water, turning a few loaves of bread and a few fish into enough to sustain and fill at least 5,000, probably double that. Those were great hours. But those were not his greatest hours. We might say, well, when he was transfigured on the mountain, when Elijah and Moses came there and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as they could be, that was a great hour. And it was, but not his greatest When he was in the synagogues, debating with the Pharisees, showing himself to be the Christ, that was a great hour, but not his greatest. The hour for which he had set his face to go to Jerusalem is the hour of which he speaks. This is the hour upon which the history of mankind turns, which is represented in the way that we refer to our history, B.C., 
and in the year of our Lord. All of this, the culmination of his birth, his incarnation, his ultimate death, and then his ascending back into heaven. This was Christ's greatest hour. He accomplished alone what the mass of humanity could never accomplish together. The writer of Hebrews says as much, doesn't he? When he, by himself, had purged our sins, he sat down. That's the greatness of your Savior. It's the greatness of my Savior. When he, by himself, had purged my sin in yours and ours together, then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's important when we think about this hour that Jesus was not forced into it. He was not coerced by a power greater than himself because no such power exists or ever will. He freely and willingly came to this hour. He gave himself for this hour. And he says again in this first verse, you can almost, the Spirit of God impressing upon us the sobriety of these words, Father, the hour has come. It's here. The scriptures don't speak very clearly to this, though it's implied all throughout the scriptures, the eternal counsel of the Father and the Son. The eternal counsel of the Father in this covenant of grace or plan of salvation or redemption. This is the hour that's being referred to. And it was upon him. One of the greatest things as, that we'll study as we go through this are the most comforting, encouraging, and humbling things. It's to see the Son of God having come to this hour, and yet he is interceding for his people. The weight of the sin of humanity, of his people, is being placed upon him shortly, and here he is praying. For instance, in verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. This is the heart of Christ expressed toward us. When he moves from the declaration of the hour having come, notice what he says next. Everything that he prays is founded upon the hour that has come and the ultimate outcome of it. He makes two requests here at the beginning. He says, glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. Some would say this is an obscure text to see the scripture declare Jesus to be the second person of the Trinity, but it must be. And I say that because how could any lesser being in praying to the Father in heaven ask to be glorified in this way? Glorify your son. Let me give you the words of J.C. Ryle here. So helpful. He says, Jesus is here asking the Father to give glory to his Son by carrying him through the cross 
all of his cross work by carrying him to and through the grave to a triumphant completion of the work he came to do and by placing him at his right hand and highly exalting him above every name that is named. Do you see this prayer of Jesus was answered when he says glorify your son. When we read Philippians chapter 2, the first part of those verses talk about Jesus' descent into humanity, his being incarnate. And it goes all the way down to his being obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then verse 9 says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow and every tongue confess. That's the Father's answer to the Son when he requests, glorify your Son. That verb that Paul uses is only used once in the entire New Testament. Highly exalted. Exalted beyond measure. Given supreme glory and honor. This is particularly what the Father does for the Son. He answers the prayer of the Son. But lest we think this is some selfish desire of Christ. We know it cannot be because that would be sin and he is sinless. But notice anyway how he directs this request for glory to his Father. He is saying glorify me so that I may glorify you. Christ's desire for glory was to be enabled to bring more glory to his Father in heaven. Because he knew this work that he was about to accomplish in this hour was of the Father. It was his plan. This is his redemption. For God so loved that he gave his Son. He is desiring that the Father receive all the glory. And notice that this is in perfect harmony and accords with what he asks next or the statement that he makes. And that is, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, make no mistake, never fear, never worry, never be anxious that Christ is not ruling and reigning. This is his own by his own declaration. He says that the father has given him authority over all Flesh. Christ is supreme. Uniquely among his people, yes. Reigning preeminently among them, yes. But there is not one person outside the scope of his authority. No one. There is no government in the world outside the scope of Christ's Authority. Did he not say upon giving us our great commission at the close of Matthew's gospel, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. This is the Lord Christ that we serve. This is the Lord Christ whose hour had come upon him. But he goes on from that and he says, you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Listen to what William Hendrickson says here. He says the human race is a whole or a unit. In order to save some out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, 
The one who saves them must have complete authority over all. I agree with it. It is a fact, and we see the song of the redeemed in the book of Revelation. Out of every tribe, tongue, nation, out of every known people group, there are those that will praise the Lord. Reason being is because Christ Jesus has been given authority over all flesh. All of mankind. But don't be confused. Don't stumble over what Jesus says here. Some have, and they've fallen headlong into universalism. Universalism basically says that in the end, everyone will be saved. You ever heard of Rob Bell? Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. He's a universalist. Don't read it. If you have it at home, throw it away. It does not accord with the truth. Love in the end does not win. The justice of God in the end wins. The justice of God is completely righteous and holy in condemning men who will not come to Christ to a fiery eternity in hell. This is the one who has authority over all flesh. But here is the grace and the mercy in this. The fact that not all are saved does not mean Christ does not have authority over all. On the other hand, they that are saved speaks to his grace and ability to save some out of this fallen mass of humanity. It's the power of Christ. Countless thousands, millions will be drawn out of the muck and mire of sin by this one man. By this God-man whose hour was pressed upon him. Notice that he says, he's praying to his father and he says that he will or shall give eternal life to as many as you have given him. I think it was J.C. Ryle again that says this well of John 17 is so deep. Sometimes our minds can barely begin to even scratch at it, but yet scratch we must because it's in the revealed will of God. What Jesus is saying here is that the Father in eternity past gave a people to the Son. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1. We're going to get to that, Lord willing, the first of the year before the world was. And there we, we don't pry any further than the Scripture allows us to pry. There are places in Scripture, this being one of them, where we just have to bow in humble submission to the wisdom and the grace and the mercy of God, knowing that in the end, the judge of all the earth will do right. Jesus says, as many as you give me, I will give to them eternal life. Matthew Poole is a contemporary of Matthew Henry. He has a commentary that is comparable, though not as lengthy as Matthew Henry. He wrote this about this third verse or second verse. We need not ascend into heaven and search out the roads of the eternal counsels of God. All whom the Father has given to Christ shall come to Christ and not only receive him as their high priest, but give themselves up to be ruled and quickened. 
by him. When you think of this, when you think of this fact of the father giving a people to the son, think of it along two lines. And this will help us make some sense of it. Yes, there were eternal counsels of God that we cannot peer into. But yet there is the end time aspect of it. Where the scriptures give a free call of the gospel to all creatures. That's why we are evangelists. That's why we have to be obedient to the great commission. That's why, Lord, helping us, we make known to everything that has breath, living human breath, the goodness of God in Christ. The counsel of God is his alone. We can't know it, but we can be obedient to what he tells us to do. Go and preach the gospel. Go make disciples. Go instruct them. Go and teach them. Go baptize them in my name. In the name of the Father and the Son. And all the while know that I will be with you. This is where, this is from our perspective why we press men to come to Christ. Why we press women and even children to come to Christ. Every person in the room must reckon with this Jesus. Every person in the room will in the end stand before him. Who is completely holy and who is completely just and who is completely righteous. And there is only one way that we will not melt into eternal condemnation. That is to be covered by his blood. To be covered and clothed in his righteousness which comes to us by faith. How can I be saved? If that question is at the forefront of your mind, how can I be saved from the eternal wrath of God? And and please see it in that way. It's right to say God saved me from sin. Absolutely right. He did. He is your atonement. He is your redemption. But in the ultimate sense, in Christ, God is saving you from himself. Because he is just. And he will pour out his wrath upon those Who will not come to him. How can I be saved? Trust Christ. It's that simple. He is all he said he was and is. He is the only way of salvation. He is the only truth. He is the only life. Come to Christ. Confess your sins before him. Trust in him. Turn from your sins to Christ and he will save you. We get down to the third verse and Jesus says, and this is eternal life. He just said he's going to give it to all those the father has given him. So now he qualifies what it is and how it comes. Eternal life here can also be be read and equated with salvation, justification, being made right, righteous, holy in God's sight. All of these refer to what Jesus is referring to here in giving eternal life. And he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. The son has one father. The father has one son. That is the exclusivity of salvation. Notice 
I said something about this last week. I want to repeat it here. How Jesus often qualifies the things he says of himself and now of his father as being true. I am the true bread. I am the true light. I am the true vine. Here he says that his father is the only true God. Why? Because every good, holy, and righteous thing of God has a counterfeit born of the devil. Everything that is good, righteous, and holy has a counterfeit contrived of the adversary of all truth. Think of the countless innumerable idols that men have created. The false gods. And Jesus very specifically says this is eternal life that they may know you, not know about you. Not know that there is a God in heaven, but that he is the father of the only savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would have salvation, if you would have eternal life, you must know the father in this way and you will only know him through his son. One of the false teachings that is pervasive in our day is that all religions will lead you to the same God. Jesus is one way, Muhammad is another. That's heresy. That's a lie of the devil. There is only one way to God, and it is through Christ. You must know him if you would have eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice this is the only place in Scripture, to my knowledge, that Jesus refers to himself as Jesus Christ. That they may know you and Jesus, Joshua, the Savior, Christ, the Messiah, or the Anointed One. There was no confusion in Christ's mind as to who he was and to the work that he was about to accomplish. There was one true God in heaven, his Father, and then there was the true Son on earth, Jesus Christ. And he says, whom you have sent. The Father sent the Son. Some have referred to it as the greatest rescue mission of all time. I want to have you consider with me this as well. I said earlier, this hour of Christ is the hour on which all human history turns. But know this, it is also the hour upon which your eternity hangs. If you were to fast forward and read through, and I encourage you to do this, read through chapter 18, 19, and 20, and 21 of John. That's the gospel. That's the good news. In great detail, we are told there what Christ has done 
to give eternal life to all the Father has given to him. The Father sent him. Yes, that's by his own declaration here. Whom you have sent. But know this. Not only did the Father give the Son. The Son gave himself. Will you have him? Do you know him? Do you know anything of this hour of which he speaks? Is this your greatest identity? Do you glory in Christ alone? Or are you glorying in lesser things? It's the mark of at least immaturity, possibly damnation to glory in anything else. If you have talent, if you have ability, if you have anything, it's what Christ has given you. If you have salvation, certainly it's what he has given you. The glory of the gospel is all of these great things that he has already said and will say. Read this 17th chapter over the next few weeks. Become increasingly familiar with it. And the beauty of the gospel is that what he prays what he has accomplished and was about to accomplish is for your salvation. This is Jesus Christ as the scriptures would reveal him. So let me read those three verses again and I'll close. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent Amen Let's pray Father we ask you this morning To glorify your son again in the salvation of lost souls. Father, we pray that you would make him known. We're thankful for the hour that Christ spoke of here. And how he willingly endured it. And how even now he is seated at your right hand. We're thankful to know that he is coming again. Help us to watch and wait upon him. Help us be ready. Being ready for us begins by coming to him by faith. Casting ourselves upon him. Oh God, give that grace to everyone here. I pray and ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.